It's a reading from the Gospel according to John. A discussion arose between John's disciples and a Jew over purifying. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, here he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, No one can receive anything except what is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice, Therefore, this joy of mine is now full. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's about five years ago, I received permission from my community to live a more contemplative expression of Franciscan life. And what that looked like practically was I was able to move out of the city. I was living in Harlem at the time. And I was able to move into our little retreat area that we have in Monticello, New York, which is about two hours north of New York City. We have a a house there that we call a house of prayer, and then we have some hermitages on the property. And for the last five years, I've been very blessed to live there. I'm able to spend long periods of time in the hermitages in our property, which is basically like a little cabin or a little shed, alone in the the mountains. And when I first moved there, I was so excited about this new contemplative vocation that I I spent a few weeks sort of daydreaming and praying, you know, Lord, what kind of contemplative do you want me to be? Because there are many different kinds, right? And my first thought was, maybe the Lord is calling me to be one of those contemplatives who is essentially a scholar who studies, reads, and prays. Well, if you know me, you know that was not going to work. And I gave it a shot for a few weeks, and I realized, you know, this this isn't for me. And so my next image was maybe God is calling me to be one of those contemplatives 
that is a, essentially a penitent who fasts a lot, who does penance for, for people and who fasts for people, for conversions and, and all those things. And I started doing this and it seemed to be going well. I was uh, fasting quite a bit and one morning I woke up and I noticed I felt very hungry. That's what happens when you don't eat. <laughs> it was new, new information for me, I thought, yeah. And when I woke up, I thought, well, I'll just, I'll eat something after I pray and after I celebrate Mass. So I was praying for a while and as I got up, I was sitting down at the time, and I was about to uh, get vested to celebrate Mass. And as I got up from my chair, I almost passed out. And I realized I need to eat something. And so I ate something and celebrated Mass and was still a little confused by this. And I still didn't feel like really good. And so my sister is a nurse. So I called her and I just explaining everything to her. And she says, you need to eat more. And it's funny, there's a Dunkin' Donuts about four minutes away <laughs> from where I live. And we didn't really have a lot of food. I needed sugar. And so I went to Dunkin' Donuts and got these two huge cream-filled donuts. And miraculously, I felt better. <laughs> so there I was, this great penitent in the parking lot of Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> and I realized, you know, this isn't going to work either. And I think about a week after that, I was in the hermitage alone, by myself with the Lord, and I was sort of reflecting on this and sort of confused about why none of these things were working. And in a, in a moment, and I remember this as, as if it was just yesterday, I felt I heard the Lord say to me, Jeremiah, do you know why I called you to this contemplative life? And all of a sudden, my ears perked up. And I got out my notebook, got my pen. I'm like, no, but I know you're going to tell me. And he said, I've called you to this contemplative life because I love you. And I just want you to be my son. That's it. And you know, at first, when I received that or heard that from the Lord, there was this great joy and there was this great peace that I found. But oddly enough, as the day went on, I found myself becoming interiorly frustrated and even angry. 
You might ask, why was I angry? How could you be angry at such a beautiful God-given word? And the reason was because I wanted to create my own life. I wanted to create intimacy with God. I wanted to be in charge of my relationship with God. And for me, it looked like fasting, maybe studying or praying a certain amount of time. Because I thought to myself, that will be my way. And the Lord, in His just love and mercy, demolished that whole dream, that whole illusion, in a matter of seconds. What was He reminding me of by telling me this? He was reminding me, I believe, that this is not about me at all. I don't create intimacy with God. I don't create relationship with God. I and we already have it. And what we have to do, if we have to do anything in this, is to receive it. But in order to receive this, this precious gift of intimacy with God, we have to become small. In the language of Jesus, we have to become a child. And you know what? There's a part of us that hates that. There is, or at least there can be, so much of our ego in what we call our spiritual life. Sometimes our spiritual life is dripping with self-love. There's a part of us, and there's a part of obviously myself as well, that believes that holiness means the expansion of our egos, or of ourselves, of our popularity. There's a part of us that thinks that we're going to look holy, that holiness has a certain look, or that we're going to feel holy, or that we're going to act 
the way a holy person should act. Do you think Mother Teresa ever woke up one morning and looked in the mirror, if they had mirrors, <laughs> and said to herself, you know what, Mother? You look holy today. All these other sisters better look out. Because I am holy, and here I come. You think John of the Cross, as he was imprisoned by his own brothers, being starved and beaten, do you think he ever said to himself, this feels holy? Or St. Jerome, as he's writing these really nasty letters to St. Augustine, Do you think he ever said, I am acting holy? This caricature doesn't exist. It's the creation of our ego. And it needs to die. Perhaps there's many reasons why many of us are like this. But one of the reasons I believe is because we are afraid of intimacy. We're afraid of it with God and we're afraid of it with people. You know, a worthwhile question to ask is, do you allow God, do you allow others to see the real you? Or do you hide behind things like your personality, your education, your vocation, where you live, what kind of car you drive. You know, one of my friends defines intimacy this way. Into me you see. It's a beautiful definition of intimacy. Into me, you see. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? But oftentimes, the real me, the real you, is hidden behind so many masks, so much self-protection, so many defense mechanisms. We have no idea who we really are.
And so God comes along and he begins to knock on these doors. Or he begins to remove these masks that all of us have. And we freak out. We run without any idea where we're going. You want to know an interesting fact about us. I see this. I see it, first of all, obviously in myself, but I see it in my ministry of spiritual direction. Oftentimes, oftentimes, when God is calling somebody, a person, to a deeper level of relationship, or a deeper, deeper level of discipleship, our first response is usually one of resistance. Without us even knowing or intending it to be so. A few examples. And I see these examples all the time. When, a, when God is, when someone's been a, a faithful disciple, a faithful prayer for a while, God will oftentimes begin to lead that person deeper. And what that looks like practically is times of prayer become more times of just silence, times of just being with God. We don't need as many books or prayer books. There's a certain peace that comes from just resting in his presence. And it's not too uncommon when someone begins to recognize this and starts moving or attempting to move in this quieter form of prayer, that after about a month or so, all of a sudden, they'll make a complete 180. An hour of prayer of just sitting quietly in God's presence changes. And now they bring half of the library into the chapel. Another example. It's not too uncommon where, let's say a married person wants to make a commitment to daily prayer. Let's say 30 minutes a day of prayer. And for the first month or so, I'll be meeting with this person and prayer is going well. They're, they're showing up for the, that 30 minutes and they're encountering God. Then all of a sudden, a month or two will go, go by. And all of a sudden now, this person doesn't have time for prayer. And I'll ask them, well, what's, what's happened? And they'll make excuses. They're busy, which obviously everyone's busy. But you were able to do, let's say, 30 minutes of prayer before, so what's happening? But I just don't have the time for that. I'm not a, a monk or a nun. 
What is happening in these two situations? Most likely, both of them are running away from God. Not deliberately, not maliciously. We're afraid of intimacy. Resistance tells us where we should go or where the Lord is leading. You know, where is God in your life? I would say where there is resistance. Why do I say that? Because it's God's desire. And maybe I would even say it's God's greatest desire that you and I become free. That you and I, according to the language of St. Paul, experience the freedom of the children of God. And so because God loves us, He starts chipping away at some of these walls that we've built. He starts revealing areas that are in need of healing or forgiveness or surrender. Because He, better than anyone, sees what all of this stuff is really doing to us. This is an act of mercy on God's part. But unfortunately, we see it and we view it and we even experience it on our human level almost as a punishment. I mentioned last night that I, I do a lot of uh, directed retreats with people. And you know, before every directed retreat, whether it's with one person or maybe like five or six, I always say the same thing. I'll say to them, do you know what you and I have in common here? I'll say, neither of us have any clue what we are doing. <laughs> and they're like, you're the director? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I have no clue what I am doing. We are like Israel. We must wait for the presence of God to reveal itself. God took Israel into a desert. And how did they experience it? Often, or how did they perceive it and interpret it? As punishment. As God, send us back to Egypt. They couldn't understand what God was doing. God is trying to lead them to freedom, and they want to go back to slavery. 
And so he has to take them to the desert. He has to take them away. He has to strip them. And they have to wait for the cloud by day, the fire by night. Because they have no idea what they are doing and where they are going. Just like us. What was God teaching them? He was teaching them to become dependent on his presence and to trust it. What does God want to teach us? To become dependent on his presence and to trust it. You know, I remember in those directed retreats, one of the first ones I ever did in my life was this poor nun. And I, going into the retreat, I had this agenda. Okay, she's going to pray with this. She's going to experience this. Then we're going to go here. And then we're going to go there. It was all great. And then she came in the first day and was discussing what her prayer was like. It was nothing like I had in my little notes. And I said, you're supposed to be following this. She was following the presence of God. And I threw those notes away. Because God doesn't follow our notes. The presence of God is everything. This is where true intimacy lies. And we are totally oblivious to this most of the time. You know, there is a part of us that thinks that God is really out there in the next town or in the next family or in the next church or that he's waiting for me to get my life together first to look, act, and feel what a good Catholic looks, acts, and feels like. And then... I'll experience intimacy with God. Sisters, do you know what happens when we think like that? We create an alternative life, an, alter an alternative self, and an alternative God, all of which doesn't exist. You know, for me, simply being in hermitage wasn't enough. I had to be something. Whether it was a scholar, whether it was a penitent, or what other silly and really self-centered ideas and images I had of myself. And the Lord was like, no, none of that. None of that is important at all to me. Right here, as you are, as things really are, that's where I am meeting you. 
That's where I am. Isn't this crazy? What kind of God is this? Do you mean to tell me that I don't have to perform a certain way to get God's attention? Do you mean to tell me that right now, right now in my frail, weak, and broken humanity, that that is enough for me to encounter and experience God's grace and God's presence in my life? How different God is than us. Intimacy with God is not something sisters, that we have to achieve. It's something that we have to realize because it's already ours. You know, every day as a priest, I hold God in my hands and you and I receive him in the Eucharist. Jesus tells us wherever two or three are gathered in his name, there he is. There's 96 of you here. That's a lot of Jesus. In baptism, the church tells us that God takes up residence. Residence, where? Not next to us, not down the street, not in the Midwest, but within us. Within us. Intimacy with God is already ours. And I, I think part of the struggle that we have with this is that we equate intimacy with a feeling. Naturally, we want to feel God. If we don't feel God or experience Him maybe the way someone else is or the way someone else is talking about Him, we think that God is absent or that God doesn't care about me. You know, there's a significant aspect of discipleship that is so extremely important. And I like to call it the evangelization of our emotions and feelings. Isn't it true we say, I don't feel God's presence? Or God doesn't seem to be answering my prayer? What's our conclusion? God doesn't love me. I'm a terrible person. 
There must be something I haven't confessed. This is why God is, is hiding from me. God never speaks like that. Never. Our feelings and emotions are wonderful gifts of God, but they're not infallible. They should never be repressed. They should never be denied. But nor should we draw conclusions based merely on what they tell us. Can you imagine if you lived your life drawing conclusions simply on how you felt? I would still be in bed. This, what the saints reveal to us oftentimes is that being a saint oftentimes implies believing without seeing. Right? Isn't this what Paul says? We walk by faith, not by sight. Being a saint oftentimes means trusting without feeling. And loving without seeking anything in return. I have struggled enough in my life to know that suffering or confusion is not a sign of God's displeasure or absence. It's just a reminder of my need to be dependent on His presence and not to rely on myself. So what do we do now? Do we fast more? Do we study more? Do we pray more? Do we get involved in more ministry? Do more good works? Well, maybe we do. But before we do any of those things, we must embrace the words that the Lord said to me, I have called you here first and foremost because I love you. And all I want you to be is my son or my daughter. Sisters, this is where True intimacy lies. And it's right here, right now, where God is waiting for us. Amen.